Good morning, everyone. Good to, uh, good to see you here. Uh, please turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 19 as we continue in our Hot Buttons series. And today we're going to be speaking about gender. I know I have done this every week, but I just want to remind you about our resource page. If you click on that red button on the church webpage, it'll take you to this list. I know that's a bit hard to see. But on the top right there is uh, the gender topic that we're addressing today. If you click on that, it will bring you to uh, some of these resources that have been uh, set out there for you. Uh, some books, including one for kids, uh, some articles, and then this resource, uh, especially perhaps helpful to you if you're a parent, uh, but anyone is welcome to use this uh, resource called Axis which is actually a full web page of its own that has a number of resources there. There's a subscription, but uh, this is free to those of you in the church family. So I just want to encourage you to check that out. We're going to talk today about gender, and we're going to use this passage in Matthew chapter 19 in which to do so. Now, if your Bible's like mine, uh, the heading at the top of that chapter says divorce. So you may think I'm uh, on the wrong topic today. But I'm hoping that you'll see uh, that the things we read in these verses will really help us in this topic of gender. So let's read some verses together. Matthew chapter 19, verse 1. <clears throat> when Jesus had finished saying these things, he left Galilee and went into the region of Judea to the other side of the Jordan. Large crowds followed him and he healed them there. Some Pharisees came to him to test him. They asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason. Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two but one flesh. Therefore what God has joined together let no one separate. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away. Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard, but it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. The disciples said to him, if this is the situation between a husband and wife, it is better not to marry. Jesus replied, not everyone can accept this word but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs <clears throat> who were born that way, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others, and there are those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept it. And Lord, we come to you now uh, requesting that your Holy Spirit would take the words of the Scriptures and open our eyes to them, and open our hearts to them. And I pray, Lord, that this time spent would be profitable in our lives, and that they would enable us to give you greater glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 3 says, Some Pharisees came to him to test him. Now this, of course, builds on a plot line that is found all through the Gospel of Matthew. In fact, all through all four Gospels, is the ongoing and rising tension between Jesus and the Pharisees. I don't know if you've ever stopped to think about that, that that is actually a huge part of the gospel stories 
is that Jesus had this continual debate and conflict with men who in those days were known among the common Jewish folks to be the spiritual elite, to be the godly ones, the holy ones, the ones who could teach us God's word. So this is actually an astounding aspect of the gospel stories that Jesus comes on the scene, the Jewish Messiah, and would have continual and rising conflict with the Jewish spiritual leaders who we know as the Pharisees. Here, we find that they come to test him. At this point in Matthew's gospel, we've already found them in chapter 12 plotting to kill Jesus. So this is not a happy test where they're coming to find out whether they will endorse him or not. They've already chosen that they will not endorse him. This was not that kind of a test. This was a test to discredit Jesus, to prove to the world around them, to the Jewish people, that he could not be trusted. They did this on numerous occasions, right? They love to come and bring these hard questions. Should we pay taxes to Caesar or shouldn't we? And it was always meant to discredit him. Here's the first thing I want to say to us this morning, that when it comes to this issue of gender, this discussion has become to us as Christians a kind of test, a similar kind of test, that our culture is placing upon us as Christians and upon us as the church. Their intent is, just as the Pharisees come to Jesus and ask a question where they thought that it was no win for him. If he answered this way, he'd get himself into trouble. If he answers this way, he'll get himself into trouble. And so I I think that's what the world is trying to press us into, this question of gender and transgenderism and how many genders are there. The world loves to throw this topic in our face because they believe it's a no-win situation for us. Either we have to back down from our traditional views and say, oh no, no, we agree with you on your philosophy on gender. Or we say, no, we don't agree uh, that, that gender is non-binary as, as the conversation goes. We don't, we don't agree with that. Uh, we believe in the traditional view of gender of male and female. In which case they say, aha, you see, you're bigoted, you're hateful. And that is the test that we find ourselves in today. So I show you some pictures now of some somewhat famous, well-known people, for the most part here, who are transgender. And I'm wondering what kind of reaction you feel in your own heart as you see these pictures. Because in a sense, this kind of shows us how we are reacting to this gender test. Look at those pictures. These are human beings created in the image of God, and we may not agree with their lifestyle choice of transitioning to an opposite gender, but what is your reaction to them and to this topic? See, I believe a lot of us as Christians, increasingly there's more and more of us who are applauding this and saying what the world says, and that is that that in Christ we're free. Free to transition. You can be whoever... I mean, just be whoever God made you to be. And increasing numbers of Christians are applauding. Traditionally, and many of us find ourselves still here, we don't applaud, we're appalled. 
And maybe you're sitting here today and you look at these pictures and it's just offensive and you're hoping the screen moves soon. And I'm wondering if there's a different place for us to land. Here's what the world wants. They want to test us with this issue so that we either side with the world or we can be dismissed as bigoted. But what if? What if we love those who embrace transgenderism? Humbly acknowledging our own brokenness while upholding biblical truth. If we do this, we short-circuit the world's test. Brothers and sisters, there are not enough of us who are finding this place, which I would argue is the place of Jesus. And as you read through the gospel stories and you find him encountering sinners and in finding sinners encountering him, the woman dragged out, caught in the act of adultery, dragged out before him. And what do we find in Jesus? We find gentleness. We find compassion. While at the same time, his unwavering call to that woman and to every person to sin no more. There was no hesitance on the part of Jesus to call sin, sin. There was no hesitance on the part of Jesus to love sinners. And we often get stuck in this place where we can't find our way in the way of Jesus. But when we love those who embrace transgenderism and humbly acknowledge our own brokenness while upholding biblical truth, we short-circuit the world's test. So how do we do that? How do we think in the way of Jesus on this topic of gender? Well, we're going to use this story, which is actually about divorce. The test, the question the Pharisees brought to Jesus was a question about divorce. And there were two camps that had developed based on the Old Testament laws about divorce, which was primarily this one reference from Deuteronomy, I believe, a reference where a certificate of divorce could be given and a wife sent away. And two camps had developed in the time of Jesus. One camp was a conservative camp that said, no, no, you, you can't just divorce your wife for any reason, but only if she commits adultery. Then the other camp said what the Pharisees are saying here, that you can divorce your wife for any and every reason. Now, we actually know the common accepted view here. The, the, the camp that was more widely accepted is exposed to us in the reaction of the disciples. When Jesus says in verse 8, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard, but it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another uh, commits adultery. And the disciples revealed to us what they were thinking about this high bar that Jesus was setting. They say, if this is the situation between a husband and wife, it's better not to marry. Do you hear it? Do you hear their own reaction here is that they had been so entrenched and so embraced this idea that if they ever got married, and we know at least Peter was married, that they could divorce their wife for any and any reason. That's the question. Jesus is going to show us, as he answers that question on divorce, how we can answer questions like the one before us today on gender. What I want us to see here is Jesus as the master interpreter of the scripture. 
So how does he begin? They ask the question in verse 3, and Jesus, in response, says to them, these Bible scholars, these men who had memorized large portions of the entire Old Testament, and he says to them, don't you love it? Haven't you read? That's a bit of a dagger there to, to these men, but haven't you read? In other words, it's contained there. It is in the scriptures, and he points them back to the very beginning. <clears throat> Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning. Here Jesus gives us a principle that's really important when it comes to understanding our Bibles. Sometimes theologians call this the creation order. That we can go back into Genesis 1 and 2 before Adam and Eve sinned and before the curse comes upon humanity and creation. And we can see what God made originally. We can see what he did and we hear him say, it was all very good. And so we see in that God's intent. Before there was sin, before the, before the creation became corrupted, <clears throat> we see something of God's intent. So Jesus, here the master interpreter, points us back to the very beginning. He does it again in verse 8. He says, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. Remember that law came after sin entered the world, after corruption came. Jesus says it was not this way from the beginning. Do you want to know God's ideal? Do you want to know God's intent for humanity? Do you want, do you want to know God's intent for marriage? Then you've you, you got to look back at the very beginning. It's a pretty simple concept. But then he ramps that up. And he talks about the creator. Or in some versions it will say the one who, in the beginning, the one who created and he uses a word here that means basically what we find in our Bibles. It means creator or create. To, to make something out of nothing. It's a word that tends to be used in our Bibles only for God because only God created something out of nothing. So again, we see God now here, not just where he was in the beginning, but we see his purpose and intent that he was the creator. And then he uses another word, Jesus uses another word, made. The creator made them. The word made here is a word that we get our word poem from. Uh, don't you love that? The idea that God as creator, and actually Jesus is talking about the creator. He's actually talking about himself because the New Testament says that without Jesus, nothing was made that was made. So here's Jesus saying, actually when I created, no he didn't say that, but he's referring to himself, the creator made them. Here we think of the artistic work of God, that in his skill and in his wisdom, he was creating humanity to be something beautiful, to paint a picture. And we know from those early creation stories, what was the picture that was meant to be painted? We were made in the image of God. I, I was in a dentist's office one time, there's a nice painting on the wall, and, and right at the bottom corner, there was this little marking and it was like uh, 13 out of 100 something like that I'm thinking that's who marked this like that's a really nice painting 13 out of 100 and then I only later realized no no that's it's just a print that's not the original somebody made a hundred prints of it copies of it and that's the 13th one it's not the it's not the grade right how dumb was I we were meant to be not the original we, we weren't created to be gods 
We were meant to be copies, images, to, to be a reflection of God. So God, the artist, creates human beings to be reflections, beautiful reflections of himself. So now we see God not just as he was in the beginning, but we see him as the one who made us. And now we begin to think about how he has purpose in making us. And we begin to think about how we are accountable to the one who made us. And we also think about what it means to be human. So that's really what this discussion of gender comes down to is what does it mean to be human? And who defines what it means to be human? And our world today says that you define. You define what it means to be human for you. Nobody else can do that for you. You decide who you are and uh, what, what pronouns you're going to use and what gender you are going to use. But Jesus says, in the beginning, there was a creator, a designer, a maker who wrote a poem called Humanity, which was meant to picture himself. And in that definition, we find out what it means to be human is this. That humans, people, were created to flourish under the rule and blessing of the God who made them. Understand that this is what it means to be human. Created to flourish, to be at our best, to enjoy life to the full when we exist under the rule and blessing of the God who made us. That's what humanity is meant to be. So God creates Adam and Eve and places them in this garden of blessing. And in fact, it says in those early verses describing humanity that God blessed them. He said, be fruitful and multiply. You see, he created them to, to exist and, and to flourish under the blessing that he'd placed them in. Blessing of a garden, blessing of, of safety, blessing of food. And yet there was one tree in that garden that they were not allowed to eat from. God gave them that rule and that stipulation. Why? Because to be fully human requires that we live under the authority and rule, the good and safe rule of the God who made us. So God created this one stipulation, don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Why would God do that? Because he knows that humans will flourish best when we place ourselves under the rule and blessing of God. So now Adam and Eve had a choice. And what did they choose? They chose to rebel against the rule of their creator. They chose to reject all of... Do you remember what Satan said? Yeah, but if you eat this fruit, you will also have... You, you will be like God. And what he did is undermined all the blessing that God had placed around them, convinced them that it wasn't good enough. So Adam and Eve rejected the rule of God. They said the blessing of God is not enough for us. And that's where sin comes from. But here Jesus is showing us, remember the beginning. Remember the creator. This is what God meant for humanity, to flourish under his rule and blessing. Hey, that's why, by the way, why, as we lovingly, as God gives us opportunity to dialogue or to interact with people who are either transgender or want to transition or believe in transitioning, we can actually find in them exactly what we are. People who are struggling to find their way in life 
People who are feeling like something is missing. Is something missing? Absolutely something's missing. And people are looking in all kinds of places, wrong places, just like we, uh, many of us, all of us, we're looking in the wrong places to find the true meaning of life and what it means to be human. We are given the opportunity to point people to the gospel and to realize that God is calling all of us back. Do you see what redemption does? Redemption calls us back to a place where we can flourish under the rule and blessing of God, except redemption adds one awesome piece. Redemption adds this piece that the Savior comes and lives within you. So now we're not just living under the rule and blessing of God. Now God, the creator and the redeemer, comes to live inside of us and we're fully united with him. Isn't that amazing that redemption takes us to a better place than we started with in creation? So here's Jesus, the master interpreter. He's explaining God's intent in creation. He's taking us back to show us and remind us what it means to be human. But then he acknowledges, number three, the reality of sin. And that's, of course, what he says about Moses' law, about divorce and these certificates of divorce, which, yes, are part of the Old Testament law. But notice what Jesus explains here. Moses was permitting you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard, but it was not this way from the beginning. What he's saying is, understand that here's a law in the Old Testament, which is absolutely part of the Scripture, the Holy Scriptures of God, which does not point us to God's ideal or to true righteousness. What it shows us is the grace and kindness of God in helping his people navigate life in a sinful world. There's a number of places in, that, in, in, in the Scripture that are like that. In the New Testament, one of the most famous teachings in our New Testament is called the Sermon on the Mount. John, or sorry, in Matthew here, uh, 5, 6, and 7. Where Jesus is describing this beautiful way of life that he wants his people to take on. To love your enemies and to bless those who persecute you. But have you ever stopped and thought about the beauty of, of a life that, that Jesus is describing is, is a life that's lived in a sinful world where you have enemies and people are persecuting you and you're still struggling not to lust after women and, and, and you still struggle with pride and you want people to notice you when you're fasting. And He's describing a beautiful life that needs to be lived in a corrupt world. That's what the Bible does. So there are parts of the Bible where we discern that this is God's ideal, or we can read about the future, the end of redemption, what God is going to bring about in the end. But there, Jesus is saying there's places in the Bible where God is simply providing boundaries to keep his people safe from the effects of sin. So why would there have been this law about divorce? From our perspective, this just seems weird. If divorce wasn't part of God's original plan, then why would he ever have given a law about it? And the answer is, out of his kindness, particularly to women, in a culture that treated wives like property. God knew that in that culture where women were treated like property, that even his own people, his own men, Jewish men, would be inclined to mistreat their wives and to send them away for any and every reason. You burnt the toast again, honey. Out the, out the door you go. 
The certificate of divorce gave that woman some legitimacy. I know that might seem strange to us. But if she didn't have that certificate of divorce and her husband throws her out of his home, she goes back to her parents' place and lives with them until they die. And then who knows what happens? She has no husband. Maybe she has no children to take care of her in her old age. If she has a certificate of divorce, she has the opportunity for another gentleman to come along and say, I would like to marry you. And now she finds herself under the protection of that second husband who's chosen to marry her and to keep her. Now, I realize all of that is like, well, that's not, that's not God's design. No, it's not God's design. But here's a law that God graciously gave his people, particularly to protect women. Women, I hope, ladies, I hope you love that concept, that God was being kind and gentle uh, to women who in that culture were not treated kindly and gently. That's what Jesus is saying here. It's because you men have hard hearts. You refuse to see God's original intent. You refuse to love your wives the way God loves his bride, his wife, his people. You refuse to do that and you decide you're going to cast your, woman, your wife out the door. That's why there's a certificate of divorce, divorce to take care of her. So Jesus here is recognizing the reality of sin in the world. And the Bible does that as well. It recognizes the reality of sin in our world. It doesn't condone it. It doesn't call us to sin. But as the people of God, we first acknowledge and recognize the reality of sin in our own lives. See, one of the reasons that we would examine this issue of transgenderism and just be appalled and just be disgusted is because we've lost sight of our own brokenness, of our own unworthiness before God. We forget verses like this, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That I'm not in some new category now because, because I'm a follower of Jesus, absolutely I'm, I'm the child of God, but in terms of my own sinfulness and brokenness, I have not arisen to a place where now I can look down on others and say, you fool, you should be more like me. Don't you see how good and cleaned up I am? There's no place for that in the Christian life because any good in our lives is because of the grace of God. So Jesus reminds us here about the reality of sin. So he raises the bar high in a sense. <clears throat> he sides with that stricter view of marriage and divorce where he gives this one stipulation, adultery essentially, as cause or grounds for divorce. His disciples express their shock because they've, uh, they've bought into this looser view of marriage and divorce. And they say, well, if we're not supposed to we can't divorce our wives for uh, any and every reason. That's probably better not to marry, isn't it? That's kind of a sad thing. Here's, here's the Lord's disciples saying, I don't think it's worth getting married if you can't just divorce your wife for any reason. And then Jesus takes an aside. Now, some would say this, this conversation here in verse 10 and 11 perhaps happened after, maybe after they had left that original scene with the Pharisees. Now they're in private. doesn't tell us that. But there's this conversation that takes place. The disciples are shocked, wondering if it's even worthwhile to get married. And Jesus says this. 
Not everyone can accept this word, but only those to whom it has been given. In other words, not everyone can accept the reality of God's intent for marriage. Not everyone can accept the possibility that maybe they ought not to get married. Then he says, there are eunuchs who were born that way. And there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others. And there are those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept this. I don't know if you're following the train of thought here. It's, it's a little hard to follow this. We go from the testing of the Pharisees, discussion about divorce, and the disciples say, is it even worth getting married? And now suddenly Jesus is talking about eunuchs. Where did this come from? The word eunuch here generally would reference a man who had been castrated. In those days, uh, that was not unheard of, particularly in ancient Old Testament times. For example, it's most likely that when Daniel and his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, were taken into captivity in Babylon and brought into the king's service, doesn't tell us this, but most likely they were castrated. They were made eunuchs. It was very common to do that. Why? Well, you didn't want the enemy who you've brought in to be your servants to be messing around with the king's harem, his wives, or to be procreating these men from another race, another country. We don't want them procreating here. Uh, there are various reasons why that would happen. But that's generally, that was the normal understanding of what a eunuch was. But notice what Jesus says first in verse 12. He says, there are eunuchs who were born that way. Now Jesus has just taken us back to the original creation, reminded us of God's good intent, reminded us that God is creator, that he's written this poem of creation and humanity that's purposeful, that has meaning and beauty. And then he says to us, now some people are born eunuchs. In other words, there are some people who are born without typical sexual organs. And what is he doing here? Here, he's recognizing the reality of the brokenness of our world. So here, Jesus, in his theology, in his understanding of Scripture, can go back to creation and see God's original intent. And then he brings that forward into present reality where sin and brokenness reign. And he can help us understand the heart of God in both of those realities. God's original intent and the present disorder of life in a broken world. Paul would write this in Romans 8, the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. We all know this. When we think of the transgender issue, this is part of the reality of what's happening. Many who are pushing a transgender agenda will point to a condition that now is known as intersex, where a person is born uh, without clear gender, their physical organs. Uh, they, they might have both male and female organs, or they might be missing uh, certain sexual organs. This happens not often, but there are people in our world, human beings made in the image of God, loved by God, who are born in this way. And 
This reality of intersex drives, for some people compassionately, drives this agenda of transgenderism where the world wants us to say that there is no binary genders, there is no male and female. Some people say it's, it's like when, when Genesis describes God making day and night. You know, obviously there's dusk and dawn, there's something in between there, and that's what it's like with male and female. It's, it's non-binary, it's just, you know, those are the two extremes, and then there's all these other things in the middle. Clearly Jesus didn't believe that. But that's part of what's pushing this agenda. There are people who are born as eunuchs or with ambiguous gender. And why does that happen? It happens because we live in a broken world that's groaning as in the pains of childbirth. Paul goes on to say it's, it's longing for the redemption, meaning the full redemption of God when God comes not just to save save his people, but he's going to redeem and restore all of creation when there will be no birth defects and illness and disease and psychological struggles for that matter. Here Jesus, the master interpreter, is reminding us about the reality of the brokenness of our world. And this is why when we approach this issue, we have to approach it with compassion. The brokenness of our world means that every one of us are infected both in our bodies and in our spirits, our inner person, with brokenness. There's not a person in this room who has a perfect body. Uh, we might spend a lot of time on Sunday mornings trying to fake that, but there's not a person in this room who has a perfect body. I used to think I had a perfect body when I was 18, then I got older and it became very obvious that I don't, never did. And then there's the reality of our brokenness internally. When I was in grade 10, I went through a period which in later years I, pr- I would look back on and say, I think that that was probably my first brush with clinical depression. But I didn't know what was wrong with me. All I knew was my mind was in absolute turmoil. I didn't ask for that. I didn't go looking for it. Nobody explained what was going on to me. It was just my experience. I just found myself in that place of hating life and everything was dark and bleak and I didn't know why. And every one of us experienced the brokenness of our physical bodies and every one of us experienced the brokenness of our inner person as well. It shouldn't surprise us that a few people in this world are born intersex. We should be compassionate about that. Imagine what that's like for someone maybe born into a culture, even a family, where a man's got to be a man and a woman's got to be a woman and you've got this ambiguity. We need to be compassionate. And it shouldn't surprise us that we find people in our world who have what's called gender dysphoria. They find themselves in a male body and they feel like they should be a woman. That is a real experience for some people. Not my experience, probably not your experience, but it is experienced by some, probably in this room. And maybe if if it's you, you've not wanted anyone to know that, but it's just a reality for a certain percentage of people in this world, born as humans, as sinful humans in a broken world, they experience that. That's a real thing. Calls for compassion. We're going to get back to that, but I want to just 
touch on a little rabbit trail here because this isn't really part of our hot button series, but did you notice what Jesus said there about eunuchs? Some are born that way, some are made eunuchs, and then he says there are those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. In other words, he's saying there are some who choose a life of singleness. They choose not to get married for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Then he says the one who can accept this should accept it. Verse 11, he had said, not everyone can accept this, but only those to whom it has been given. Reminds me of what Paul wrote here in 1 Corinthians 7. As a single man, Paul writes, I wish that all of you were as I am. If that had been true, none of us would be here. But as a single man serving God, he could say to the Corinthian church, to the believers there, I wish, I wish all of you were single, but each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. <clears throat> In other words, some of us uh, not only have the gift of desiring marriage, we have the gift of the opportunity to get married. There are some people who have a gift of feeling they're not compelled to get married. Now, I have not known many people in my life who actually preferred not to get married as a Christian. I've known a few, but very few. More often, the gift from God is not that I don't desire to get married, it's that God hasn't given me the opportunity to get married. And I, I, I guess I wonder as we read that, do we see that as a gift? Paul did. Because he'll go on to explain in 1 Corinthians 7 that when, when you don't have a spouse and children, you've got way more time and energy to serve God. And he would teach us, of course, that as a single believer, you, you're actually married to the Savior. He is your spouse. And you can devote your whole life to serving him. Paul would say, I wish, I wish you were all like me. We see the dignity that Jesus and Paul place upon the reality of singleness. Paul saying, I wish everyone was like me. Jesus saying, some people choose this for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. So I just want to make this point. Singleness is a legitimate lifestyle that does not undermine your full value as a person. Remember what we said, to be human, to flourish as a human is to live under the blessing and rule of God. You don't have to have a spouse to do that, and you can be fully human. It does not undermine your full value as a person and can free you to love and serve Christ in ways that a married person cannot. We have single people in our midst here who are doing that. They are serving the church. They are serving the Lord in their singleness, and we need to encourage and applaud them for that. So there are some people in our congregation who are single, not because they've chosen it, but because God in his sovereignty has chosen that for them. And, and, and those of you who are in that place, you can see that as a gift that God has given you. It doesn't mean you shouldn't continue to pursue marriage, but as long as God allows you to be single, it is a gift from him that has great meaning. So let's finish our gender issue and summarize how we're going to navigate this according to the theology of Jesus. Jesus, who teaches us here about the reality of sin in the world and the reality of brokenness in the world, would teach us to expect dysphoria, that gender dysphoria, that reality that there are many people in our world, especially in our day now, 
where children are being taught about gender and, and that gender is not binary and that gender is a personal choice, of course, dysphoria is going to be increasing. In fact, I suspect families represented in our church are going to be dealing with this far more than uh, would have been true in the past. We need to expect gender dysphoria. It's part of the brokenness of sin and of our lives. Secondly, we should expect hard-heartedness. Don't be surprised when the world tries to put us to the test and tries to get us uh, to either embrace their view or, or to become uh, uh, hateful and judgmental towards them. That's what they want. There's a hard-heartedness in this issue we need to expect. We can expect that people, as they struggle with gender and as they've been taught by our culture, that you can be whoever you want to be, that when we call them to follow Jesus and we call them to see and embrace the ethic of Jesus around gender, that they're going to be hard-hearted towards that. But that's not us. We're not to be the hard-hearted ones, right? We're not to be the hard-hearted ones. We are to be the compassionate ones. We are the people of God. We are the church of Jesus Christ. We are his body. So now we are the ones who stand before the woman caught in adultery or uh, uh, the woman who's transition to become a man. Now we are the ones who stand before them representing Christ who will say as he said to the woman caught in adultery, neither do I condemn you go and sin no more. We are going to uphold the grace and the mercy and the compassion of Christ while we uphold the perfect truth and ethic of Christ and his word. We're going to uphold both of those things. <clears throat> in our compassion. And then finally, we're going to point people to the gospel. We of all people should understand that as believers in the gospel, we have nothing to boast about except for Christ. We, we don't boast about our, uh, our, our intelligence, our wisdom, our righteousness. We have nothing to boast in but Jesus. We remember what Jesus himself said to one of those Pharisees named Nicodemus who came by night wanted to hear more from Christ and Jesus said to him to, to this religious spiritual man you must be born again he says that to every one of us because what he's saying in that have you ever thought about this when God says to you you must be born again what he's saying is your first birth is inadequate You're, you cannot be alive with God based on your first birth, your human birth, it has left you woefully inadequate to live in the presence of God. You need a second birth. And all of us can put our hand up and say, yeah, that's true. And yet turn and, and forsake all compassion to people around us who need that same second birth. We compassionately point people to the gospel. You know what that forces us to do? It forces, up, it forces us to uphold the holiness of God. That God redeems sinners, broken sinners, who've done what Adam and Eve have done, who've rejected the rule and blessing of God. <clears throat> they have said, we don't want a creator over us. We don't want a creator dictating our gender. We don't want to live in the blessing of God. I can find better blessings in my own way. We have done it. The world has done it. The gospel points people to a holy God 
who says, who calls sin, sin. He calls righteousness, righteousness. And by the death of his son, who suffered in his male body, to redeem and rescue and save all of us who find ourselves trapped in sinful, broken bodies. That is the gospel that we rest our hope in. That is the gospel that we point all people to, including those who embrace transgenderism because we see in them the perfect candidate. Here is a person who's longing to find fulfillment. They're trying to figure out what it means to be human. They're trying to find their way in this world. And we know the way. It's through being united with Jesus Christ and being redeemed. Can a person with gender dysphoria live as a Christian? They can. Jesus has actually just explained that to us. Just as a person might choose not to pursue marriage for the sake of the kingdom of God, a person can choose to battle against that gender dysphoria out of their desire to honor the Lord. I don't, I don't have to transition to be true to myself because as a follower of Jesus, I'm called to be true to him. And I can find complete fulfillment in a relationship with God even as I struggle with the realities that I struggle with in this world, whether it's gender dysphoria, whether it's anxiety, whether it's depression, whatever it might be. God is restoring me. God is making me fully human as I find my hope in Christ alone.